welcome to our event hosted by the LSE Higher Education Block. I'm Nihan Albayrak Aydemir and I'm one of the co-chairs of this panel together with Lee and Sekera. Today we have an amazing panel on passport privilege where we'll be talking about various repercussions of holding a passport from the global south in academia. So I was an international student in the UK for the last seven years and I had faced many difficulties in academia because of my passport, such as not being allowed to work or not being able to attend some conferences because of visa procedures. What was striking for me was that none of the people around me were even aware of such difficulties because they had passport privilege. As a result of this, last year I wrote a blog about this issue to tell the world about what we as scholars without passport privilege go through. It has been very well received, so many people reach out to me to say that they are going through similar things and our struggles are often not visible enough. So we organized this panel today to start some discussions around this issue and I hope you'll enjoy it and find it useful. So I want to start with Johanna by focusing on the experience of migration. Studying abroad is often seen as the first step in international mobility. What effect does the current regime of UK passport and visa protocols have on the student migrants, like international scholars coming to the UK to study or work and British scholars going abroad? Hey, thank you. And thank you, Nihan and Leanne, for inviting me to speak. Um, so international students on uh, courses of longer than six months need a visa to study in the UK. And those on full degrees, so courses lasting more than a year, count in immigration statistics. And immigration in the UK, as I'm sure a lot of you will know, is a highly politicised issue. And so inevitably, international students get drawn into these discussions, these discourses. And I just want to spend a few a few moments very briefly looking at how the UK has discussed immigration and visas. So many of you will have seen the story probably covered in the press a few days ago about proposed le legislation that Home Secretaries would have the power to suspend or delay the processing of applications, visa applications, from countries that do not quote, cooperate with the UK government in relation to the removal from the UK of nationals of that country who are required to leave to enter um, the UK but do not have um, permission. So this uh, clause in the Nationality and Borders Bill also allows for the Home Secretary to impose additional financial requirements for visa applications. So that is to increase um, fees for visa applications if countries don't cooperate. So this will inevitably impact international students, particularly students from the global south applying for a visa to study in the UK. And it reflects a wider sense of UK immigration and the visa system as hostile to immigrants, including international students from specifically poorer parts of the world. I'd also like to mention this widespread assumption that was kind of debunked in 2017 that international students, particularly from the global south, don't leave and they overstay. Um, and then in 2017, the ONS published data as a result of, of, of an exit survey of, um, of migrants that basically said that 97% of all students from the global south on student visas actually do in fact leave 
when they're, when they're thought to leave. And, and prior to that, there was a, a sense of around 100,000 a year um, were overstaying illegally. And I think that just that surprised the press. I think that surprised the government as well, that, that particular. But it just kind of underpins this discourse um, and this assumption that students are trying to trick the system um, or they have some sort of ulterior motives. So in terms of recent changes that I'd just like to very briefly run through, um, you've got obviously COVID and the traffic light system. You just have a look at the, the list of countries, the list of red countries um, compared to amber and, and green countries, and you'll see what students, um, if they do come, have to be um, uh, quarantined in a hotel at their own expense, which of course will exclude a lot of students. You've got Brexit, which obviously only applies to um, students from the EU. And I think one thing that this has highlighted for a lot of our students is that is what other students not in the EU have always had to go through. So they've always had to pay the, the surcharge for the NHS. They've always had to pay this sort of visa processing fee. Um, and also, of course, tuition fees. I'll come back to that in a minute, which are obviously hugely inflated for international students. Other changes, the post-study work visa, which um, will allow students from now on to live and work in the UK for up to two years after graduating, which I think could well, will be important, has been significant in conversations I've had with prospective and current international students. And then finally, I don't know what the implications of this will be, but you have the new migration partnership between the UK and India. This migration partnership, we don't really know a small kind of um, clause in that is that it, they will expedite visa applications from, for students from India. But again, we it will have to wait and see kind of what the impacts of that is. In terms of effects, very quickly, um, what are the effects on students? I'm just going to discuss issues of exclusion, equality and equity. Obtaining a visa, many poor students will automatically be unable to secure a visa to come to the UK because they'll be unable to demonstrate over a 28 day, day period the proof of finances that are required. So for London, to live in London, um, you have to show that you have £1,334 in a bank account for, 28, for a 28 day period. And um, there, interestingly, I found this out yesterday, there is a list of countries that are excluded from this requirement, because when I went as an international student to Canada, I had to show proof of finances. But if you look at the list of countries excluded, they are wealthy countries. Um, so again, countries, students from the global south will have to prove this, this kind of financial status. There's also, of course, fees. So foreign students in the UK can pay up to three times um, as much as the domestic student for the same course. And when you talk to colleagues in Europe, sometimes they're very, you know, they're, they're just kind of surprised by this or, or shocked by this. Um, Stuart Tannock, who's at UCL in the IOE, has argued in his book, it is this kind of fee differential that periodically leads to charges by international students and others that universities in the UK treat these students as cash cows and are more interested in making a profit out of these students than pro promoting higher education internationalism or safeguarding international student well-being, end quote. And just a final word um, before I shut up. Um, I think the agreement with India, which was part of this trade deal that we've all heard a lot about, um, and the assurance that student visas for, for Indian students will be expedited. I think this just basically just supports this general feeling, a general sense that international students are valued for the economic benefits 
that they bring. Um, and, you know, arguably we could say that, that this results in them being exploited by the current system. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Johanna. That was that was really uh, uh, appreciate you kind of reducing it all down to the time uh, to the time limit. But it almost seems from what you're describing that you know this kind of cash cow status of Indian students works to the detriment then of their rights and how they're seen in universities. It's always been quite as a as a former international student myself. It's been quite interesting how there are so many uh, processes, policies, procedures in place to improve the well-being of home students. And one often doesn't see anywhere close to the same amount for international students. So, so it is a very, very stark reflection of that fact. Thank you so much. Uh, if I could put the next question to Claudio, uh, uh, sorry, to Ulrich. Uh, uh, it, it's about COVID vaccines, uh, the, the highly unequal access to COVID vaccines and the significantly higher vaccine rate in high income countries has created a vaccine apartheid. Today, almost half the population in the UK, I think, uh, are vaccinated, whereas I think in Kenya, the estimate is that only 30% of its population will be vaccinated by 2023. Uh, that again just brings into stark relief the difference uh, between high income countries and uh, lower income countries. Uh, how will the vaccine passports introduced as a result of COVID-19 increase passport or visa privilege, especially within academia? Thank you so much, Leanne. Um, I think this is one of those things that's just um, a very complex issue. We'll try to do it justice in the, the next five minutes. So I say mixed, mixed effects. Um, at first glance, it would appear that COVID vaccination is nothing new. Um, as, a, as in talking about vaccine passports, because as we all know, um, the yellow card already exists for which you have to get vaccinated against things like yellow fever, for example, if you're going to endemic regions or you're from endemic regions. So it would seem as though this is nothing new. When, we, when it comes to COVID, um, High-income countries are publishing um, lists of authorized vaccines to get into the countries. Uh, an example is Germany. And so um, they, they're excluding vaccines like um, the Chinese vaccine, Sinopharm, or the Russian vaccine. And when we go back to the map of um, vaccination around the world, um, again, like you mentioned, lower middle-income countries um, are nowhere close to what high-income countries have done in terms of um, access to vaccines as well as um, vaccine coverage. Many low-middle-income countries are yet to receive enough vaccine doses. And to, to just make matters worse, um, there is a growing sense of vaccine hesitancy that has caused a slow uptake um, in Cameroon, where I'm, I am now right now, because people are just so hesitant. And this hesitancy is linked to the infodemic li related to COVID-19. Medical professionals and personnel, so uh, people who are more likely to be um, global health researchers or researchers, international researchers, are even more hesitant. For example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, there is a lot of vaccine hesitancy with um, some of the major hit, um, figures in terms of public health um, admitting on TV that they haven't been vaccinated. So when you take all these um, elements together, you have a very um, complex situation 
unfortunately, uh, being for a low and middle income country, when we talk about travel, it's a lot about the geopolitical and diplomatic relationships between your country and the country that would um, uh, be your host country at, uh, at the time you're traveling. And when you when you take COVID aside and take into consideration all this growing sentiment of um, anti-immigration, you, you, you find out that it's going to be very, um, very difficult to, to travel um, very soon. Because if you're from a country where um, your major um, vaccine donor is China, for example, well, there's nothing much you can do about getting access to vaccine and traveling. Now, if, if you're going to a country that doesn't want to get the Sinopharm vaccine, um, you're basically calling for individuals to start getting those um, doses by themselves. And so the wealthier people, even from the lower and middle income countries, will be the one getting access to vaccines. And uh, the, the less wealthy people often were at the grassroots uh, knowledge of what we want to know, because um, be it in economics, global economics, global health, there's that disconnection between the higher ends of like signing documents at places like the, the, the United Nations or the World Bank and what happens on the ground. Um, and if we want to bridge that gap, we need to get more and more of those people from low and middle income countries and who are on the ground who do not have access to all these things. So I will end like I started. Um, COVID-19 vaccine passports and their effects on travel for researchers it's very complex and it will probably be on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on which, which country you're from and where you're trying to go to. Um, it will depend on access to vaccines. Um, it will equally depend on the geopolitical relationships and, and diplomacy between your country and your host country. And that just makes it even so much more difficult because you have to forget the research for a moment and just get versed with all these nuances before you're able to travel. Uh, which just adds a, a psychological burden. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ulrich. That was amazing, especially like pointing out that vaccine pas passport is not something new. And it reminds me of the Brexit, like when Brexit first happened in the UK, lots of email, we received lots of emails from universities about uh, not being overwhelmed and not worrying about our visas, but this was directed to EU students but as international students all through the years, we did not receive such support. So I would like to continue with Rose uh, to ask about visa procedures now. So with reference to immigration and visa processes, do you think uh, universities are contributing to making it a more fraught experience for international students and stuff or a more equitable one? It's always a, a tricky question and I think Universities and HE institutions are, are in a really difficult place. They don't necessarily want to be having to enforce increasingly restrictive immigration controls, much like Johanna was, was uh, alluding to earlier. Immigration in the UK is highly politicised, and we've been through a time since probably about 20, 2009, 2010, where the immigration system in the UK and the student immigration system wrapped up in that uh, has become increasingly tight. However, universities and HE providers have found that the, the system as it currently stands has transferred a lot of the responsibility that would have traditionally sat with border control onto them. And so they are finding themselves enforcing these increasingly restrictive immigration controls without really 
ever having agreed to do so. It's been something that's been imposed. HE institutions, as we know, are first and foremost places of learning and research. <clears throat> and yet since 2009, when the this new system, the original points-based system, you may have heard uh, a lot a lot trialled over the last few years about the introduction of a points-based immigration system in the UK. Well, we've actually had one since, since 2009, so it, it's nothing new. But when that first came in, um, since then, education providers have been forced to accept legal responsibility for the international students and staff that they recruit from overseas. And they literally have to sponsor them and have to take responsibility for them in order to so that they can obtain their visas to to enter the country. And the Home Office are really clear about this. Being able to sponsor these visas is a privilege and not a right. And it's a really important privilege for universities. As Johanna said, it's a huge income um, driver, whether or not you agree with that, it is a massive income driver for universities. But also, we are in pursuit of a diverse student body because it is widely accepted as a positive learning experience for all concerned, the, the more diverse the student and staff body is. So it's really important for universities, and yet they are finding themselves now in a situation where they, they have this privilege to bring, um, to bring in students and staff but that privilege comes with a myriad of responsibilities and HE institutions have to implement these responsibilities. And there is a very real and significant threat of losing that privilege if they don't. What we've seen since 2012 is, is the fact that more and more of those so-called privileges that institutions are striving to maintain have actually fallen possibly unknowingly onto international students themselves. So universities are not just protecting themselves, they are protecting the rights or the limited rights of their international students. I'll give you an example. If an international student wants to work part time or if they want to bring in their family members or even take advantage of the new graduate route that we heard about earlier, they need to make sure that they are studying with an institution that has a track record of immigration compliance. And that's a track record of immigration compliance as assessed by the Home Office. If they don't, if their provider isn't seen as compliant enough, then they will lose those simple rights. They could be taken away from them. So the visa processes that students and staff encounter may therefore seem bureaucratic, and in many cases they are, and potentially they might even seem discriminatory. I'm sure we've all got experiences of when they've, we've been caught out by them, they've been done in a, in a burdensome way, they've not been a very pleasant experience. But unfortunately, they are necessary burdens that have been put in place to protect some of the admittedly limited benefits that our international students are still currently able to access. Some of these processes, they are far from perfect. And I could, I've, in my career as a consultant, I've seen numerous examples where they would benefit enormously from a more student centric and compassionate design. And I think some of the compassion is missing um, amongst universities when they are going through these processes. But inevitably, they are always going to be unpleasant by the virtue of the task of what they are checking. And in that way, 
yes, they do create a more fraught experience. It would be impossible to sit here and argue that they don't. But equally, without them, I think we would find that there would very quickly be even greater levels of inequity. Thanks for that, Ross. That's that's a difficult uh, position to, to be in. Uh, and, and I guess, uh, you know, how does that make you feel in your role where you're kind of trying to kind of, you know, straddle these these kind of different priorities. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to speak to it now or later, but it would be interesting to hear from your perspective. Indeed, and it is it is a tricky role to play because we want we want all of our students to have a great experience. Coming to the UK to study is such a fantastic opportunity, and we want we want our students to be able to make the most of that, to focus on their learning, to focus on their experience, to focus on making the most of their time here. And yet so often a lot of that focus has to be taken away to deal with immigration and visa bureaucracy. And that is that is a very hard to, to straddle because, you know, universities have invested a lot to, to be able to maintain this sponsor status and continue bringing in those those students. And those of us who work in this space, I like to think that we do try to do that with compassion and we do try to understand what the students are going through. And obviously now uh, with Brexit, it's an even greater challenge that we have because there's there's significantly more volume having to go through these processes. But it is difficult and we do see uh, we do see where it goes wrong and we see very real and live examples I see in, on a daily basis in my role where it has gone wrong and students, staff have to leave. They have to leave partway through a programme potentially or they can't pursue um, that opportunity of their dreams that they wish to. And it is heartbreaking and it is very upsetting. Um, and we strive to do what we can in order to smooth that as best we possibly can. But we are working in, a, in an extremely regulated and extremely bureaucratic space with that. Thank you. Thank you for your candor. Uh, that, that's really you know, helpful to get uh, a picture from the other side. Claudia, if I could... If I could put the next question to you, I, I read your interview in American Anthropologist, and it was it was it was wonderful. Uh, and and you talk about the commodification of diversity, and you rightly state, in my opinion, a southern attitude requires that we avoid celebrating diversity as an academic commodity. Now, in your view as a scholar who has you know studied inequality across Latin America, Asia, Africa, Europe. Uh, what's what's your perspective on this? Have uh, visa and immigration controls in high-income countries uh, commodified diversity further? Is it possible to decolonize without dismantling these colonial kind of funding and immigration practices? Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Leanne and Nihan, for the invitation to be here with you guys. I think it is definitely an, uh, possible, but uh, very challenging in many ways as well. Uh, while I suppose that mainstream uh, institutions are long for uh, representation of diversity from people from the South or underprivileged uh, identities within its academic community, namely and especially in, among students, uh, administrative staff and visiting professors, sometimes it's not so open to receive diversity as permanent in their uh, department. So as permanent faculty, for example, that's one, one starting point. So while South, Southern thinkers and thinks, thinking 
have got more movable recently once they are decontextualized. Uh, CVs and diplomas from southern uh, uh, institutions are not so uh, convertible or so mobile like this. So if you are a if you're a southern scholar, you have to make yourself palatable for another institution. If you have to, ha you want to have a more stronger position from where you address things that are ultimately important for science at large. So following up a little bit on what uh, most of us were saying, but Joanna and Ross were very clearly addressing. Uh, on the idea of visas, uh, I suppose that uh, we've been shifting from from a source of securization uh, uh, framework to a more market-oriented framework as well, on-border management. So this is something that some scholars are pointing to, especially uh, Juliette Dupont uh, recently wrote about that. Uh, so uh, if you're a Southern scholar, if you're a Southern scientist, depending on where are you from in the South, you have to apply for visas only to cross airports, even if you're going from a southern, uh, say, country or region to another southern country, you cannot avoid stepping in the north. This is a, really a, a money machine for uh, the flow of money flowing from the south to the north. And not normally, as you guys pointed out, uh, it is it is at the at the expenses. It's normally at the expenses of the south, actually. So the flow of money. And uh, is, is still reproducing, I'd say, I'd say, a sort of colonial um, uh, framework through which uh, the circulation of people uh, is uh, understood. Uh, so another aspect would be like, um, and then going with that, to address a bit more the passport privilege idea that uh, uh, Nihan has, has rightly uh, pointed to. Um, what are the consequences for, for a scholar if she or he is not so physically movable? Is it like that you are not able to take nice pictures for your Facebook or Instagram or what? I think it is a bit more than that because it has consequences on your CV, right? So as you write it pointly, pointed, uh, it's uh, your capacity to transit affects your capacity to be transitive. So if you're not movable, you cannot be transitive. Uh, so, so you cannot make yourself more uh, understandable or convertible, or you, know, you cannot, you cannot uh, be uh, understood elsewhere apart from uh, the, the society or the, or the academic environment where you are originally from. You know that uh, normally uh, scientific environments are very much na nation national uh, base, like uh, there is this bias. But of course, if you come from a mainstream, uh, uh, say, environment, uh, the norm is the world. So if, if you do the rules, like if you set the grounds, if you set the boundaries for what is a relevant scholar to be, uh, because your, your national uh, uh, you know, uh, environment is the norm, then uh, it makes things much more complicated if you're from Uganda, Uruguay, or elsewhere, comparing if you are from the US, UK, or Germany then probably it gives a second consequence if you are, so while Southern thinkers are, are movable and CVs are not so movable, uh, uh, you, if you're a Southern scholar, you have to prove three times more or maybe 10 times more that you are competent or that you're, you're, what you're saying is relevant. Not because what you are saying is not relevant per se, but because you, you honestly, your CV or diploma does not authorize, I mean, does not grant you uh, uh, posi the position you need from where to speak 
fluently the, the language of the, of the institution. So you have to decontextualize yourself. So in order to get, uh, you know, more understandable in other situations. I suppose also that the funding is a big issue. And this is not only that the money is flowing from in one single direction to support colonial, uh, say, a framework. Uh, so it's not that money is only circulating from the north to the south, but uh, from the south to the north in large amounts. The presence of many scholars from the south in the north is not only depending on grants or facilities that are uh, uh, granted from northern institutions, from mainstream institutions, but they have to trust on government, philanthropy, and family support from the South. The money flowing from the South to the North is also very relevant to that regard. Uh, and there's a really huge commitment of families to support uh, their uh, children or the people uh, to make themselves more um, scientifically movable, uh, having granted, and this is like the last and most uh, one of the most important points for me, looking for the longing for certification. That is one of the most important things that people are looking for when they come to the North. They want a certificated diploma so that they get themselves more movable. Understand a Southern um, identity or passport as an ontological dimension. So meaning that you're from the South, you have this ontological stance to understand these things or to be you know, facing these things, but because there is also an intersectional, I suppose, dimension on the passport privilege. If you're a man, if you're a woman, woman uh, so origin, class, race, gender, play a role on this as well. It's really not that, okay, I am, a, you know, exemplary from the South. So this is, uh, you have to take this into consideration as well and the privilege of the diplomas. That's another dimension, I suppose, which is important to, to remark. Thank you so much. That was really interesting and a lot, a lot to think about. Thank you so much. So I, I was wondering about something else and um, to kind of take a slightly kind of, you know, uh, perhaps play the devil's advocate. Uh, most of us are successful scholars from the global south uh, on this panel who are living or working or have lived or worked outside the global south. Skeptics would point to us to our success as examples that passport privilege does not exist, or at least that it does not have a significant impact on our careers. Would you agree? Would you not agree? And if not, uh, could you share an example, if, you know, if you're okay with doing that, about how it shows up in your area of research, how it manifests itself in your work or your personal experience? Who, who wants to take that loaded, that big question first? Uh, I'll take a crack at it if you don't mind. Thanks, thanks, Ulrich. Yeah, thank, thank, thank you. I mean, it, it, it's always it's always easy to take um, that point of view of taking a, a few people um, because we're really just a few of uh, very, so many people who have not been able to um, to to make it quote unquote because I, I agree with what um, Claudio said your, your your capacity to move today in this world it will really translate how much you can move in the uh, professional ladder whatever your profession is it really determines that if if you stay put in one area you're not able to do that so I, I'll just share my personal experience with um, passport privilege because I think it, it's important to to highlight this here. 
So I'm originally from Cameroon, um, a physician um, in, uh, working in uh, global neurosurgery, neurosurgery as well as global surgery. And um, I think three years ago, I was going to the World Health Assembly, WHA in Geneva, Switzerland, um, where we were supposed to work and contribute to the World Health Assembly. And um, that was in May. And a month later, I was going to join uh, my new program at that time, which was in, at Harvard Medical School in the United States. So I, I, I asked for a visa. Before asking for the visa, I booked an Airbnb in Geneva. Anyone who's been in Geneva knows how expensive Geneva is. Um, I got flight tickets, return flight tickets. Um, didn't just like book them, I bought them. And then I had to put money in my account, keep it for a while, and then ask for the visa. And come the time I was denied the visa. The, the, the reason was um, the visa officers weren't convinced that I was going to come back to Cameroon after the World Health Assembly. Bear in mind, I had added documents showing that June I was starting at Harvard and that I was going to ask for a visa for the United States. I mean, who in their right mind would think that you'd go to Geneva, stay at Geneva instead of going to Harvard, right? Um, and still, they, they insisted. I went to the Ministry of External Relations in Cameroon, tried to get this sorted, but there's, a, again, geopolitical diplomatic relationship between Cameroon and Switzerland. It's quite complex. And I, I wasn't able to, to, to go to that event. I lost a lot of money trying to get the refund on Airbnb, and I couldn't even get a refund on the flight. I got, I had paid all of that out of pocket, and that, that's what happened. Now, beyond the money I, I, I lost, I think one of the things that happened with COVID, everyone was lauding the, uh, the efforts and effect of the internet, but the internet can never replace um, physical presence. Um, anyone who's been at a conference, at a meeting, knows how much that is important with building human relationships that can push you in your career and i'm not the only one you know you when you have that profile when you're young um you don't have what they would call ties i don't know what how you define those ties i mean when you talk about family ties if anything folks from the global south have more family ties than most folks in the global north like my family if i had to count everybody in my family it'd be like hundreds Right. So it's like you don't have the ties that will make us believe that you would come back. And I miss I miss that opportunity. I want to link it now back to when someone says, oh, there's no passport privilege. I fast forward. I'm at Harvard and we have projects. We have to, to, to travel. Uh, we had to go to China. It was tough. I couldn't go to China while I was there. We had to go to, to um, another event again in Geneva because you have to take so much more time to, to do the applications, get money aside. I mean, I know so many folks from the Global North. I'm not sure they would have the kind of money I've been asked to keep in my account for as long as I've kept them to get a visa. Now, if you tell me that is not a privilege, I mean, we need to redefine the word privilege then. Thanks. That, that is a really powerful uh, example. And sorry that you have to put yourself out there and make yourself vulnerable to, to kind of bring these issues to the fore. But... I, I completely, you know, I've been there 
and just the fact that you have to submit your documentation and explain the most basic of things to bureaucrats that defies common sense or any sort of intellectual uh, ability is, I, I find it, you know, humiliating at times and insulting and really diminishing. Uh, but yeah, uh, th thank you for that. Uh, is there anyone else who'd like to kind of, you know, uh, especially for people who have not been at the receiving end of this, it would be really useful, I think, to hear about these experiences. But again, I don't want to put anyone on the spot because I do appreciate it's quite personal. Claudia? Yeah, I can. I can share uh, like uh, some experiences. Uh, one workshop, a big one I was organizing in Sao Paulo, we had uh, on African, uh, teaching African history. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of uh, many um, from different parts of Africa. Um, and the, the foundation which sponsored this had a contract with a travel agent for, for booking the flights. So normally, what do you think when you, you, you're, from, you're from somewhere and you're booking, you're booking a flight? Uh, you just go to the, net, to the internet and choose the best route, time that you think uh, it's like suitable for your trajectory. But in this case, uh, we are uh, confined. We, we should uh, do it through the uh, through, through this travel agent. And uh, we had a, we had a professor coming from Ouagadougou, which we suggested he could fly uh, Ouagadougou Dakar, São Paulo. I don't know if you realize uh, how close it can be comparing if you travel elsewhere. But the travel agent decided to make this gentleman travel through Paris instead, uh, which doubled the, the number of hours that he was flying and changed the, the amount of the ticket from, to, from 750 uh, uh, euros to 2,500 euros. So uh, it, it is really at the same time uh, uh, asked for, for this gentleman to fly much more, to be, uh, I said it was an exhausting trip and also to apply for a Schengen visa. So. Uh, we are still uh, not be able to get out of this uh, colonial frame, uh, frame mi uh, mi uh, mindset when we're thinking about uh, uh, the same, like how we do transitivity within our uh, regions. This is the history of so many of us. Like, you know, if you have to come from uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia to, to Latin America, you cannot avoid unless if you don't fly through Europe. Uh, and this are, there are not so many options if, for that. So it's 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 not only to think about you know next time you go to book your uh, your flight with a low cost company, but also on how uh, flight connections are ma make the hubs in order to reproduce uh, colonial uh, circulation of goods and people. Uh, so it is of course has long historical roots. Uh, and of course, it's difficult to, to change it, but institutions in that regard can play a role, uh, suggesting for alternative routes that would make this trip less uh, exhausting for people and, and sometimes even less uh, money consuming. Thank you very much, Claudio. That was a really interesting uh, point to make. Uh, we, we all have been there. We experienced these issues, but uh, thinking about the more systematic roots of uh, colonization in academia and in our world was interesting. So I would like to continue with that to uh, ask a final question about awareness be 
before we move on to the uh, Q&A with the audience. So before that, now I want to ask all of these uh, panelists, like uh, when you think of the people you work with, most of us are uh, scholars uh, from Global South working in Global North. When you think of the people you work with, do you think those with passport privilege uh, are aware of their privileges? And why do you think it's important to authorize awareness of this issue. I just have a very quick thing to say, I suppose, in relation to my teaching. So I teach a course on a third year course on uh, undergraduate course on migration and transnationalism. And actually, one of the first things I do with the students, we have a very diverse kind of group of students. But what comes across, I, I, I ask them to think about their own uh, passports and their own passport privilege. And it is interesting, many of them are, are, are dual passport holders and will use a different passport depending on what, what's convenient you know it's easier to travel on this passport to this country and this passport and that kind of level of privilege I think is something that I, I myself you know experience this kind of privilege but certainly in my teaching one of the first things I do is that gets students to reflect on the fact that not everyone's experiences of migration are the same because we do have a lot of international students and a lot of migrant students in the classroom but when you kind of scratch the surface and discuss their experiences with them, they're, they're nevertheless quite privileged. They find mobility easy. And it's just kind of breaking down that initially and saying, well, you find it easy, but, but borders and barriers and boundaries are, are different for different people who are differently placed in this system. Um, so that's what I was going to say, really. It's kind of one of it's one of my starting points for actually getting students to think about this. If, if, if I could just come in there to, to follow follow on from that, it's so one of my roles uh, that I do in at um, at London Business School and previously where I've worked is is supporting um, colleagues who wish to bring in um, potentially academic visitors and, and scholars from all over the world who wish to bring them in to either conduct research or, or teach or or even um, potentially uh, mark exams, lecture, and, and all of those. And the number of conversations I have had with colleagues who come to me and say, you know, I have, I have this, um, th this particular expert in this field that would, would like to come over to, to deliver a short series of lectures. Um, please, can you just give him the paperwork or give her the paperwork that she needs to come into the country? No, it doesn't. I'm afraid it doesn't work like that. There is significant hoops that they have to jump through at their end. There are significant hoops that we have to jump through at our end, and they're not going to be able to get into the country next Wednesday, even though you've got a lecture booked with them. And this is a conversation that I, I have had monthly with various academics around, uh, academic colleagues. So it's, I think there is a real lack of understanding amongst those of us who haven't suffered with this passport privilege. And uh, I do think it is, it is very important that the issue is highlighted. Yeah, um, just going to add a little bit to that. I think um, the difficulty with anything that's defined as a privilege is that for those in that position, it is a right and they've never known anything different. So um, unfortunately, um, a lot of folks in academia have never been in a position to find out that what it is, what is for them is not what is, is not the same reality for others. And I think that um, 
in my experience anyway, most academics that have from the global north that have found how things have been different for their global south colleagues have been pretty good at providing moral support because beyond moral support, there's not much that they can do because, just because that's that's the rule. And on the other hand as well, um, uh, what I, I like to call this like the passport penalty. A lot of folks from the global south are not necessarily aware of the passport penalty until they decide to travel. Um, so it is, it is not uncommon that there actually is actually an entire industry in the global south of folks helping people trying to navigate the visa system because um, it is different for the UK, it's different for France, it's different for Germany. And you end up like, if you don't go through them, you will have a lot of, um, you have a really hard time. So be it the passport penalty or the passport privilege, I mean, you just, you, you need to shed a spotlight on it. You need more and more of those stories told. And you really need it to be associated with things that people are more likely to, 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 to be familiar with. I think in the UK, one of those things is just the Premier League. You know, if it if it was affecting a player from Manchester United, it's not the same, unfortunately, as though it was affecting a student from Oxford. That's just how it is. Uh, because, I mean, um, I think Ross spoke about the economic um, value of um, international students. It's a £25 billion market. The Premier League is like £8 billion. So if we ask the question, if it's really about economics, it would make sense that things should be easier for international students than the professional football player. But football just has that position where, and everyone just everyone just um, associates easily with football than with international students because the whole image of they are coming to the UK to get our jobs, to get all the money, and to go. Whereas it's the other way around. So it's about storytelling and politics. Thanks, thanks so much for that, uh, Ulrich, Claudio, Ross, uh, Johanna. Would, would you like to add any comments, Nihan, before I close, bring the session to a close? I just would like to thank everyone for joining us, uh, for participants, uh, and for Leanne for uh, co-organizing this channel. Also, I, I wrote that blog post. I wasn't uh, aware of the maybe main uh, systematic issues of this topic, but you all uh, brought some really interesting perspectives and I'm so looking forward to reading uh, your work. This has been such an illuminating discussion. Our panelists have spoken about the ontological and intersectional dimensions of passport privilege, the recent flurry of UK regulations and policies that have exacerbated the exploitation of international students, the lack of understanding of this issue by those who have always enjoyed passport privilege, and how this is an issue that goes beyond economics and money, but can be improved through storytelling and politics. A big thank you to our wonderful panelists, Johanna, Ulrich, Ross and Claudio, who have come together despite their busy schedules, logistical challenges and COVID to share their insights on a very important and evolving issue. I would also like to express my gratitude to Nihan, my co-chair and comrade in arms, who kicked this off with her very prescient post, The Hidden Costs of Being a Scholar from the Global South. Thank you so much for writing about this in creating awareness on this issue. And finally, I would like to thank our lovely audience. Thank you for making time and effort to attend and participate. Please continue to talk about this issue on Twitter, Insta, hashtag passport privilege. 
And look out for the podcast recording on the LSE Higher Education blog, which will be published soon. Thank you.